Well, turn with me, if you would, in your Bibles to Romans chapter 1. If you happen to not have a Bible with you this morning, there should be one in the chair in front of you. This morning, the most important thing that we will read and look at is what God has to say in these verses. I will use terms like the Bible, Scripture, um, all of that we understand and we know and believe here at this church that the Scripture is perfect, it is inspired by God, it is infallible, it is without error, and you can trust it. Um, There are things in life that you cannot trust. I don't know if you're like me, but basically every time a commercial comes on, I mute it. I just, I just can't take the spiel all the time, you know. Um, you can trust the Word of God. This isn't a sales pitch. It, it, it's the Word of God. And so let's look at this this morning. Romans chapter 1 and verse 1. The scripture here reads, Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ. Now what we're going to look at today, many times in an introduction to a letter like this, you can really blow past things that are said about an individual. But the line that we just read, Paul a servant of Jesus Christ. If you would have known Paul when he was Saul before he came to know Christ, you would have never thought you'd be reading that line. Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated unto the gospel of God, which he had promised before, afore by his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son Jesus Christ our Lord, which was made of the seed of David according to the flesh, and declared to be the Son of God with power, according to the Spirit of holiness, by the resurrection from the dead. Today, we serve Jesus Christ, who is God. And He declared to be God by rising from the dead, the resurrection of the dead. Verse 5, By whom we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations for His name, among whom are you also the called of Jesus Christ. Let's uh, go to the Lord in prayer. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for all that you've done for us. Thank you for giving your life for us on the cross. And God, thank you for changing Saul and uh, calling him to be the Apostle Paul. And God, I pray that as we examine his life that you would um, show us things, Lord, in our lives and and help us to make application with this. Uh, God, I ask for your help this morning in declaring your word. Thank you for our pastor, for his family. Thank you for these uh, faithful men. Thank you for our deacons. And uh, God, you have blessed us so much here in this church with our leadership, and we give you the thanks and praise for that. And uh, Lord, please help us now as we study your word. Ask in this in your name. Amen. The statement here in verse 1 reads, Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ. And today we're going to examine the change that brought this blaspheming persecutor to the servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. So number one here you have, we're going to look at Saul and his purpose in the past. Saul and his purpose in the past. So if you would look with me at Acts chapter 7. Acts chapter 7. And what you have here is Stephen, we know, was the first martyr within the the New Testament. He was the first martyr of the church. And the scripture says in Acts chapter 7, uh, actually, let's go back up into into chapter 6. In chapter 6, verse number 8, the scripture says, And Stephen, full of faith and power, did great wonders and miracles among the people. Then there arose certain of the synagogue, which is called the synagogue of the Libertines, and Cyrenians and Alexandrians, and them of Cilicia and of Asia, disputing with Stephen. And they were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spake. That's what happens when you... 
give people scripture, right? They can't resist that. Verse 11, then they suborned men, which said, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes and came upon him and caught him and brought him to the council and set up false witnesses, which said, this man ceaseth not to speak blasphemous words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth shall destroy this place and shall change the customs which Moses delivered us. And all that sat in the council, looking steadfastly on him, saw his face as it had been the face of a junior higher in the youth group. No. Oh, the face of an angel. Okay, now two different things. Um, the face as it had been the face of an angel. Then said the high priest, Are these things so? And he said, Men and brethren, and I and what happens here is Stephen, throughout chapter seven, completely destroys the testimony of those false witnesses. And he gives you an exegetical sermon on what God did with the nation of Israel in the Old Testament and how God brought them out of Egypt and, and by, by the hand of Moses and, and just point after point after point. He recounts for them as a deacon. He's not even a preacher, but he gets up and he, he exegetes the word of God to them and shows that Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of uh, what God's plan was there in the Old Testament. And if you come down to verse number... Um, Let's go to verse number, let's go to verse 45. So we'll pick up the end here. He has talked to them about how God brought the land of Israel, brought the nation of Israel out of Egypt, verse 45, which also our fathers that came after brought in with Jesus into the possession of the Gentiles whom God drave out before the face of our fathers under the days of David, who found favor before God and desired to find a tabernacle for the God of Jacob. But Solomon built him an house. Howbeit the Most High dwelleth not in temples made with hands, as saith the prophet, Heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. What house will you build me, saith the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Hath not my hand made all these things? And so Stephen, throughout that chapter, he quotes Scripture to them and, and teaches them amazing things from the Old Testament. And again, discounting what false witnesses had said against them. Uh, they had said that he was speaking against Moses and against God, and he just shows them what God was doing in the Old Testament. And it says in verse 51, You stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears. Now, you have to remember, as a Jew, hearing someone say that you are uncircumcised, that's very offensive. You remember uh, David said, What about this uncircumcised Philistine? I mean, that, that was a derogatory term used of the Gentiles. And Stephen says, you are uncircumcised in your heart and in your uh, ears, and you do always resist the Holy Ghost as your fathers did, so you do, so do ye. Uh-oh, brought their family into it. You talking about my dad? He said, you're stiff-necked and you're uncircumcised in heart and in ears just like your fathers were. He is, he is through the inspiration of the Spirit, trying to show them that Jesus is the Christ, verse 52, which of the prophets have not your fathers persecuted? And they have slain them, which showed before the coming of the just one, of whom you have been now the betrayers and murderers, who have received the law by the disposition of angels and have not kept it. And really, that's a summary of the people in the Old Testament. That's, that's the summary of the Jews. Now, you had individuals who believed it and were, were uh, saved there in the Old Testament. Abraham, you know, he believed God. God counted that to him for righteousness. But as a whole... The nation of Israel, they, they received the law of God. They just didn't keep it. Verse number 54, When they heard these things, they were cut to the heart, and they gnashed on him with their teeth. But he, being full of the Holy Ghost, looked up steadfastly into heaven and saw the glory of God, and Jesus standing on the right hand of God, and said, Behold, I see the heavens open, and the Son of Man standing 
on the right hand of God. Then they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and ran upon him with one accord and cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their clothes at a young man's feet whose name was Saul. And they stoned Stephen, calling upon God and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And he kneeled down and cried with a loud voice, Lord, lay not this sin to their charge. And when he had said this, Here's God's commentary when a believer dies. He fell asleep. He fell asleep. Chapter 8, verse 1, And Saul was consenting unto his death, and at that time there was great persecution against the church which is at Jerusalem. And they were all scattered abroad throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. And devout men carried Stephen to his burial and made great lamentation over him. As for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering into every house and hailing men and women, committed them to prison. Therefore, they sat down and bawled their eyes out and didn't do anything for God. This is an amazing verse. What do they do? Therefore, they were scattered abroad, went everywhere preaching the word. What an amazing response to persecution. That's a good response, don't you think? Well, here we know Paul in Romans, he identifies himself as Paul, the servant of God, the servant of Jesus Christ. But before he became, he was named Paul, we know him as Saul. And here we find him with his past. His purpose in the past, well, letter A, he was complicit in the stoning of Stephen. He was complicit in the stoning of Stephen. We just read in Acts 7.58, And they cast him out of the city and stoned him, and the witnesses laid down their clothes at a young man's feet, whose name was Saul. Now, I want you to think about this. Um, Isaac, why don't you stand up here for me? You come over here. We're going to kill you this morning. You get to be Stephen. All right, and then... Uh, your name. Come on up here. <laughs> Ethan. It's hard. You get up in front of people, the Rolodex. It's like, uh, he's not Susie. He's not Jill. Ethan. All right. And then Noah, you come on up here. Davey, you come on up here. Noah, you get to be Saul. Oh, great. Stand. It was, Saul was short. So, And then Davey, you come on up here. Now, the three of us, we hear Stephen preaching. And so, just say, you stiff-necked. You stiff-necked. Say it. And uncircumcised, uncircumcised. In, heart, in heart, and in ears. And, in ears. and so what did these guys do? They stopped their ears and they ran up on him with one accord. You think we can do it all at the same time? Ready? Go. One, two. No, wait. On, on three. Now, not three and then go, right? One, two, and on three. Okay, ready? One, two, three. We're going to... Wait, 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 wait. Oh, hold on. I don't want to... Here, do that. Okay. Ready? Go. One, two, three. Get him. All right, okay. And what did they do? They stoned Stephen, but notice who was holding the coats. Now, in a court of law, if we were to murder him, would he be just as, would he be an accessory to murder? He'd be an accomplice, right? He would pretty much be there, and if he doesn't run and get help, if he doesn't try to get me off of him or whatever, he's an accomplice, right? So not only does he hold the coast. So, do you see how Saul was involved here in the persecution of Christians? It's pretty amazing. He held the coats, stood by, and, and heard him. He heard what he was saying. And God began to work on his heart. Because you see later on, we'll talk about that here in a moment. Thanks, guys. You can be seated. You can give me my coat back there. So, thanks, man. So, he's complicit. In the stoning of Stephen. Now, some of you teachers, you guys, you have, I'm sure have dealt with this. 
where a student does something, gets in trouble, but there was another student involved that just didn't say anything, was there. And, and sometimes people are just in the wrong place at the wrong time, right? We've heard that phrase. But other times, they're in that place because they want to be there, and they just want to watch or help in some way, and then they try to get out of being guilty um, with what these other students were doing. Paul here, he identifies for himself. Look at this, Acts twenty two twenty. I gave this to you in your handout. And in quite a few of these verses, I gave in your handout just for sake of time, but I really want you to read it. Because Paul, later on, as he's giving his testimony about how he came to Christ, he says in Acts twenty two twenty, And when the blood of thy martyr Stephen was shed, I also was standing by and kept the raiment of them that slew him. You know, Paul, later on, he identifies, man, I was right there and I was going right along with it. I... I, I I was complicit in, in the stoning of Stephen. And not only that, but he consented to his death. A letter B here, he consented to the death of Stephen. If you would look at uh, Acts chapter 8 and verse number 1, the scripture says, And Saul was consenting unto his death. Now, we have in our judicial system um, different degrees of manslaughter. Right, You have different degrees of manslaughter. You have manslaughter and you have homicide. You have different even legal terms for how a person is killed. If, um, if I run a red light and I accidentally T-bone somebody and that person is killed, that, that, that is going to be a different level of punishment than if I plan my murder out and go shoot someone and kill them. You know, We have different um, legal terms and different levels of punishment for for uh, different ways that people are killed. You know, you have premeditated murder. That's different than um, killing someone in a car accident. Here, Paul says that he consented to the death of Stephen. So Paul, so at, when, here in verse one, if Saul's consenting unto his death, he's not consenting unto his bodily injury. Saul knew what they were going to do to him. And as those rocks started being hurled, um, it, it didn't just escalate. He consented to his death. And so no doubt there have been times, and those of you that are in law enforcement, no doubt there have been times when someone got into a fight and all they wanted to do was beat somebody up, and it led to being killed. I can remember here in our city, within the last, I think about 10 years ago, there was... Uh, I remember reading in the paper where a man, these two guys got in a fight and one guy hit the other guy with a, a, a pool stick, killed him. And no doubt when that was going on, he thought, you know, I would just uh, knock this guy out. And he ended up killing the man. Saul knew full well what was about to happen and he consented to it. He didn't say, hey, guys, stop. Don't, don't, don't go that far. He, said, he consented to his death. And what is consent? It's an agreement of the mind with what is proposed. He gave his full agreement his full consent with the killing of Stephen. Saul was consenting to his death. And Paul, Paul identifies that later on in Acts twenty two twenty. He says, And when the blood of thy martyr Stephen was shed, I also was standing by and consenting unto his death and kept the raiment of them that slew him. Paul was just as guilty as they were, even though he wasn't the one that took the rock and threw it. He consented to his death. This is Paul's purpose. When you see Saul, when you see him as Saul, his purpose is to destroy Christianity. It is to destroy Christians. And we're going to see that here in the next point. Let us see. He was committed to the persecution of the saints. Now, we're getting ready to get back into football season. How many of you have already been flipping through channels or you turned the TV on and there was preseason football? 
And it's just like, you just like, it's like the smell in the living room just changed. You're like, the smell of fall. Oh, wait, no, that's Kate. Okay. Um, you know, <laughs> the smell of football is in the air, you know, or talking about fantasy football leagues and already on now on ESPN, you know, guys are talking about a guy's uh, value in the draft. And it's just that time of year. There's, it's, we smell it in the air. And as you get back into football season, you have men that are committed to football. Um, you know, you've, just, you've, you've seen how committed pro football players are to the game. And here, Paul's commitment was to the persecution of the saints. Here are a couple of specific things. Uh, number one underneath letter C there, he made havoc of the church. He made havoc of the church. And we'll see that in Acts chapter 8. In verse number three, it didn't just stop with Stephen. Stephen was just one of many. Now the Lord, he gives us the details about that in his word. But you know, there are other martyrs that Saul stood by or that Saul uh, persecuted. And uh, it was more than just Stephen. Verse three, as for Saul, he made havoc of the church. Now, havoc, it means to waste or destroy. To waste or destroy. Now, as a young man, I grew up with two brothers. Um, I have my, my younger brother, he's about three and a half years younger than me. And my older brother is about four and a half years older than me. And I have to tell you that three boys in a house, there's nobody that can wreak havoc like three young men. <laughs> I mean, we can get brand new toys. And within hours, they'd be wasted and destroyed, Right. You, and, and that's something that parents have to help their children with, right? Um, I remember Chloe, often she'd come to me and still does, and like, Daddy, can you fix this? And there were times when it was like, yeah, I can fix that. Let me see it here. All right, where are the batteries? Okay, battery. <laughs> you just fix it with a battery, right? Other things, it looks like it got dropped off the Empire State Building, and you're going, Daddy can't fix that. <laughs> and you're going to have to learn to not break your stuff, right? Saul, when it came to the church, he reeked havoc on it so he tried to waste or destroy the church acts twenty two nineteen. he says during his testimony he said i said lord they know that i imprisoned and beat in every synagogue them that believed on thee that's the type of person saul was he wasn't just ordering people around he physically was doing the beating the whipping and we've read about men like obadiah holmes and, and you can see the the painting in the, in the chapel there and read about these men that because they were trying to uh just l- keep the ordinances within a local church. They were beaten for the faith. People that gave their lives because they were baptized, because they believed that a person ought to be baptized after they were saved. You have Balthazar Hubmeyer, who was uh, drowned there by uh, uh, Zwingli in, in, the, in the, I believe it was the uh, Danube River, but he was drowned there for the faith. Saul, he imprisoned and beat in the synagogue them that believed on thee. Look at Acts 26, verse 9. He says, I verily thought with myself that I ought to do many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth, which thing I also did in Jerusalem. And many of the saints did I shut up in prison, having received authority from the chief priests. And when they were put to death, I gave my voice against them. You see the consent there again. And I punished them oft in every synagogue and compelled them to blaspheme. And being exceedingly mad against them, I persecuted them even unto strange cities. So here's Saul, who is trying so hard to destroy Christians and Christianity, their faith in Christ. He hates the name of Christ so much that he is doing everything he can to get faithful people, faithful believers, to renounce their faith in Jesus Christ. 
That's the type of person Saul is. Now, let me ask you, in the coming weeks, you guys are going back to school. Let's say there was a guy named Saul at your school. And this is the type of person that Saul is. When a Christian missionary is killed, he rejoices in it. When you bring your Bible to school, he slaps it out of your hand and he tries to curse in your face and say everything he can about your God to get you to feel humiliated in front of all your friends and and, and do everything he can to get you to not be faithful to the Word of God. Imagine Imagine if there was a kid at your school like that. Imagine if he would get in fights with Christians and just beat them up just for wearing their youth group shirt to to school. Imagine if there was a kid like that. If you're like me, you would think that God would never do anything with a kid like that. That he's, he's so far gone. He hates God so much. I mean, you just stay away from him. Do you realize that is the reputation that Saul had? I am Haldeman here. Not only was he persecuting the church, but I love this this quote by all. I am uh, sorry, I, I skipped over a few things. Um, so number two, not only did he make havoc of the church, he injured the church. Saul, he injured the church. First Timothy one thirteen, he says of himself, who was before a blasphemer, and a persecutor, and injurious. That was Saul. So imagine you have a kid at your school like that. He's a blasphemer. He says horrible things about God. He says horrible things about Jesus Christ. Imagine if he was a persecutor. And to, so to blaspheme is to utter impious or reproachful words against God. To persecute is to pursue in a manner to injure, vex, or afflict. I mean, they are walking the halls looking for you. You see that? And then to be injurious is to be wrongful, to inflict damage or hurt. All he wants to do, all Saul wanted to do is to hurt Local New Testament churches like this one. Anything he can do to drive a wedge between a family member. Anything he can do to drive a wedge between a a young person and their parent. Anything he could do to hurt and vex and injure, that was Saul. And now imagine you go to school with a guy like that. Imagine those of you that are uh, in the workforce. Imagine there's somebody at work like that. And some of you work with somebody that is that adamant about Christianity. Would you ever think that God could do something with that person? I am Haldeman said, not only was he persecuting the church, but here in this, uh, a, a, sorry, Acts 9, 5, he says, and, and he said, who art thou, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus who, whom thou persecutest. When Jesus Christ showed up in Saul's life, it was a miraculous, uh, it was a miraculous meeting And Jesus did not ask him, why are you persecuting the church? You see what he asked him? He said, why are you persecuting me? So here's what you can know as a Christian. When you are reproached for the name of Christ, that reproach, it's on Christ. The Bible says that uh, if any man be reproached for the name of Christ, happy are ye. So I.M. Haldeman says this. Finally, we'll get to the quote here. He says, anything which hurts a member of Christ's body hurts the body. And hurts him who is the head of the body. In persecuting the church, Paul was persecuting the Lord himself. Every blow that fell upon the back of a Christian fell upon him. And you know, many times as Christians, we take persecution personally. When what you have to remember is if you are serving Jesus Christ, don't take it personally. That's, that's between them and the Lord. Now you may be the one suffering the injury. And Paul, his life after he got saved was 
confrontation after confrontation after confrontation uh, like that. But here, we know that every blow that fell upon the back of a Christian really is a blow to Jesus Christ. So you have Saul. And what happens is, in the book of Acts, God miraculously appears to Saul and says, Why persecutest thou me? And Paul and Jesus Christ, Saul and Jesus Christ, have an encounter. They have a meeting. And it is a very miraculous meeting. And I want you to see some of Paul's commentary on that meeting. So if you would, go with me to 1 Timothy chapter 1. I mentioned a moment ago, imagine you have somebody at school that is as adamant at fighting Christianity as Saul was. I mean, take like, a, I mean, I'm talking like a Richard Dawkins. That level of hatred and vitriol and, and work against the work of Christ. You know, it's amazing to see who God can change. And here, Paul gives us his testimony about what God did in his life. So 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse number 12, he says, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord, who hath enabled me, for that he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry, who was before a blasphemer and a persecutor and injurious. But I want you to see this phrase, but I obtained what? Mercy. Do you see how great the mercy of God is? When you look at Saul, how he tried to wreak havoc on the church, he was, he was committing people to prison, he was beating them, he was consenting to their death. And then God changes his life and he, he becomes a saved individual. Now what we know and understand through the New Testament is that a saved person is this, one who realizes that they're a sinner. The Bible says, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. You don't have to kill somebody or consent to their death to be a sinner. The Bible says, and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burneth with fire and brimstone. You know what you have to do? Jesus has to be a liar. And I don't know about you, but if it takes one time to kill someone to be a murderer, how many times does it take to be a liar? Just once. And so the Bible says, And all liars shall have their part in the lake which burneth with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. So a person who is saved realizes bef that before God, they are not right, they're not just, they're not perfect, and they are a sinner. And the penalty for that is death and hell. But Jesus Christ, as God, died on the cross to pay, to shed His blood for their sins. See, Jesus Christ had no sin of His own to pay for, so when He died, He wasn't paying for His sin, He had none. When he gave his life, he was shedding his blood for you and for me. The Bible says that he gave his, himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. And so what do we preach? We preach the gospel. That's the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ according to the scriptures. That Jesus Christ, we read it in Romans, that he raised himself from the dead to show that he is God. And that he has the power to forgive our sins. And so Paul, he says simply here that he obtained mercy. And if you are saved this morning, you've, it's because you've obtained mercy. In Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 4 there in the handout, it says, But God, who is rich in mercy, for His great love wherewith He loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ, by grace ye are saved. So here, God is a God that's rich in mercy. He loves you so much that He has quickened us together with Christ. If you've placed your trust in Christ for your salvation. And not only that, but look at what Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 1, in verse four, uh, in the end of verse 13 there, he says, I was injurious, but I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly 
in unbelief. You know, unbelief, it can lead to a lot of persecution. Unbelief can lead to a lot of reproach. And you know, there are those who are willingly ignorant. Hold your place here in 1 Timothy and look with me at 2 Peter. 2 Peter chapter 3. Second Peter chapter 3 and verse number 2, the scripture says, "...that ye may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets, and of the commandment of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior, knowing this first, that there shall come in the last days scoffers, walking after their own lusts, and saying, Where is the promise of His coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of the creation. For this they willingly are ignorant of." You know what that means? If you're willingly, that means you made a choice, right? So they are, they've made the choice to be ignorant. Uh, Brother Dave McCracken said they're dumb on purpose. <laughs> that, what is it? They are willingly ignorant. Why? Because of unbelief. They don't believe that Jesus Christ is coming back. They don't believe, if you continue with the passage, that God overfloated this world with water, with a flood. Um, actually, go ahead and look at that. Look at verse 5. For this they willingly are ignorant of, that by the word of God... The heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of the water and in the water. How was that? By the word of God. In the beginning, God said, let there be light. And there was light, right? So it's the word of God was active in the creation. That by the word of God, the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of the water and in the water. Whereby the world then that, that then was being overflowed with water perished. And so here's what you have. And the Creation Museum, I believe, does a great job of this. You have two people. Here's, here's the evidence. Here's stuff that rocks. You find rocks. You find all kinds of interesting fossils. Here's all the stuff that you find. And on this side, you have a scoffer. One who approaches that, willingly ignorant, saying, Ah, uh, no, I don't believe that God flooded the earth. And I don't believe that God made the earth. And he looks at the evidence one way and comes up with ape to man. Ah, Problem solved, all right? And now it's getting more popular to kind of believe aliens to man, you know, that that's getting, gaining more popularity because ape to man is so ridiculous, right? And then you have believer on this side that looks at the Bible and says, oh, in the beginning God created the heaven and the earth. I wonder how God did that. And reads through chapter 1 and chapter 2 and chapter 3 and goes, oh. And then reads about the sinfulness of man and how God destroyed the earth with a flood, but still in His grace gave people the opportunity to get into a boat so they'd get saved, but a bunch of people didn't get in. And he reads that and goes, oh, the world was overflowed with water and perished. Hmm. And so you have two people that approach the same evidence. I have yet to meet an, a, a college-educated scientist that when you ask them, okay, every, all the stuff, all the rock strata, everything that we're looking at, fossils, oil, how all that was made, let me ask you. If the Bible never said anything about a flood, right? let's just set that over here. Could a worldwide flood have produced what we're looking at? You know what the answer is? Uh-huh. I have yet to find, because that much pressure, and you can go through all of the different engineering and the science behind that much pressure. You, you just ask them, could hypothetically, since we're dealing with science, let's deal with hypothesis. Could hypothetically, could this evidence have happened with a worldwide catastrophic flood? 
Hypothetically, yes. And you know what? Practically, it did. And you know what? But again, they'll try to, you know, and this is what's silly, you know, a flood couldn't, but oh man, a meteor knocking into the earth, you know, it killed the dinosaurs, it killed everything. Okay, so fire and a meteor could, but worldwide flood can't. I have yet to find somebody that would deny that a world flood can't. But what they deny is that a flood happened. The science is there. A worldwide flood could cause all the evidence that you see, all the rock strata and all these different things. Grand Canyon, go out and look at that. That's pretty amazing. Could a worldwide flood do that? Uh Uh-huh. But what are they? They are willingly ignorant and they deny the flood. And so they scoff at it. Paul said of himself, he said, I did this ignorantly in unbelief. And, you know, there may still be someone that you're working on, giving the gospel to, you're talking to, and they're doing some things ignorantly in unbelief. Well, you keep praying for them. Keep talking to them. You keep being faithful and see what the Lord does. And maybe they never trust Christ. Maybe they live a scoffer and they die a scoffer. Well, that's on them. You continue to be faithful. Don't let them and their persecution wreak havoc on your faith. You see that? We have the answers. God told us there was a worldwide flood. And when you see evidence that lines up with what God said, it just encourages you in your faith. But if I never had any evidence that there was a worldwide flood, we just have what God says. That's what God said happened. That's what happened. But it is cool that we can look and find some evidences that these things happen. And so back to our, uh, our handout here. So Paul, he, his purpose in the present, he received God's mercy. He did these things ignorantly in an unbelief. In verse 16, the Bible says, Howbeit for this cause I obtained mercy, that in me first Jesus Christ might show forth all long suffering for a pattern. Uh, that, that word long suffering is also in the passage there in Second Peter, that God is long suffering, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And uh, like what one man said here, he said, Paul's conversion is itself a figure of symbol of the way in which the nation of the Jews is to be converted at the last. This is interesting, and hear me out on this. Paul was not converted by the preaching of the gospel, but by the personal appearing of the Lord in glory. See, that, that's a picture of the miraculous salvation that's going to happen to the nation of Israel when Jesus Christ ascends, or de- sorry, descends to set up his reign and rule on this earth at the end of the tribulation. Paul, he says he's one born out of due time. His, his conversion is a miraculous conversion. Show me in there where... Philip, and the, what did Philip do? He preached to the Ethiopian eunuch the gospel, right? He's like, uh, he sees him reading Isaiah 53. He says, do you understand what you're reading? Uh, no, how can I accept something that guy me? He goes, all right, let me show you, Isaiah 53. And he preaches unto him Jesus, right? He gives him the gospel. Did Philip go and give Paul the gospel? No, Jesus Christ himself knocked him off his high horse, you know, mule or something, knocked him off there in, in, uh, on the road to Damascus, and it was a miraculous conversion. And so I do want to make that distinction. And, uh, but Paul, in the, in the same way, was saved by grace through faith. He believed on the Lord there. It was just a miraculous uh, appearing there of the Lord. And God saved him. So he received God's mercy, just like you and I do when we get saved. Letter B, he received God's grace. He received God's grace. When you think about mercy, receiving mercy... That shows me that there should have been a penalty. There should have been judgment poured out, right? And that's what we deserve because of our sin. But we've received mercy. Not only have we received mercy, but we've received grace. Verse 15, he says, And the grace of our Lord was exceeding abundant with faith and love, which is in Christ Jesus. Do you see how God's grace was abundant with faith? You know what saves you? It is not communion. 
It is not baptism. It is not being a member of a church. It is faith in the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. What was the work of Christ? He died on the cross, was buried, three days later rose from the dead to show that He is God. And it's simple faith. The Romans chapter 10 says it this way, that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised Him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. That's, that's what we believe today. That's the gospel. That's what we believe and have faith in. Uh, it's what God has told us. And so Paul, he received God's mercy. He received grace and had faith in Christ. And that's what you did. If you're saved, if you're born again, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, that's how it happened. You received God's mercy and God's grace. And that grace brought uh, faith. Look at this. It says, um, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says, For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. So the very faith that we have, where we can make the choice to believe in Christ, the very faith that we have is a gift from God. So everything I have is, in salvation is of God. It's not of works, lest any man should boast. And then underneath that, by God's grace, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. This is a faithful saying. Can we look at this? Look at verse 15 in our chapter. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15. The scripture says, This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation. So you know what? If you are in here, you ought to accept this as true. Because it is. It is true. It ought to be accepted as true. He says that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. Can I tell you, it is amazing that Jesus Christ came into this world. God could have created all this, and back there when He overflowed the water and it perished, He could have just been done with us. As a human race, He could have just said, okay, I got six people that got in the boat. Eight people. It's amazing what happens when you only have one cup of coffee in the morning, all right? Six, eight, you know. Who do we appreciate? All right, fall kickoff season's coming. That's all, that's all that are going to believe in me? done with you done done it's so good that god's not like me that god is who he is and in his long suffering his mercy and his grace he came into this world i want you to think about this some of you get really irritated which you ought to around people that cuss and swear use the lord's name in vain tell dirty jokes now imagine being God Almighty, no one is holier or as holy as you are. And you're walking this world seeing the trash, seeing the filth, seeing the, the way that people live their lives engaged in certain behaviors, and yet you still love them. That's our Savior. Came into this world to save sinners. I, I feel like there's no passage that does this more justice than John chapter 3, if you would look there with me. John chapter 3, we're very familiar with verse 16. It's probably the most quoted, most well-known verse in the Scripture. But John chapter 3 and verse 16, the Bible says, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For... God sent not His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. He that believeth on Him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already, 
because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation, that light is come to the world, and men love darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. Can I tell you, there will be people, and there are people, that say, how can God, a loving God send people to hell? A loving God does not send people to hell. People send themselves to hell. He came that they might have life. He came to give us eternal life. He came to save. And there are those that don't believe. And God says they are condemned already. Why? Because of their own sin. And Jesus if he were to allow sin into heaven, would have to break and defile his own holiness. And he will not do that. So those who are sinners that die without Christ will spend eternity separated from him forever in a lake of fire. And that is because God is a just God. He's not going to defile himself by allowing sin into heaven. Sin must be paid for. And Jesus says, I came into the world to save sinners. That's what he came for. He came to save men like Saul that hated him, that reviled his name, that tried to get other faithful believers to, to, to denounce the name of Christ and to kill them and give their consent. He came to save people like that and people like you and people like me. He came to save sinners. But for those who believe not, they're condemned already. And there's a famous preacher, Jonathan Edwards, I preached a sermon called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And I encourage you, if you've never read that, it'd be worth your time. Because if you do not believe in Christ, if you've never trusted Him as your Savior, you are a breath away from spending eternity apart from Christ. I had Mark chapter 2, verse 16 in the handout. And when the scribes and Pharisees saw Him eat with publicans and sinners... They said unto his disciples, How is it that he eateth and drinketh with publicans and sinners? When Jesus heard it, he saith unto them, They that are whole have no need of the physician, but they that are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. You'd probably be really silly this week to go to the dentist if your teeth are already clean and you don't have any cavities. You know, we do checkups, right? But imagine going and having x-rays done and tests that they do on cancer patients when you don't have cancer and you know you don't have cancer. That'd be silly. Nobody would do that. When do you go to the doctor? When you think you're sick, when you, when you, something's going on. And so many people, what you're telling God is now you didn't die for me. No, I'm not a sinner. I spoke to somebody at the fair. We went through the talk to all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And I said, do you believe it's your sinner? No, no. You know what you're doing? You're scoffing at what God has told you. You are telling God, I do not need Jesus Christ. When Jesus Christ came to save you. I have this written. Nothing evinces or shows the depravity of man more fully than his unwillingness to believe himself depraved. Now depraved, it simply means you cannot save yourself. You are lost. You are without Christ. You are without God. And, and there's nothing that... Uh, shows the depravity of man more than to go, I don't need you, God. I got this. Man is so depraved. And that's under the entry of events there in the Webster's Dictionary. You know, it's amazing. Look with me, if you would, at our text again. Look at Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1, verse 1. Now, thinking and keeping in mind of all that we read about Saul, about how he 
made havoc of the church, consented to the stoning of Stephen. There are many others that he caused to blaspheme. Romans 1, 1 says this, Paul, say he's no longer Saul, what happened? He met Jesus Christ. Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ. You know what it took for you and I to be able to read that? The mercy and the grace of God. And I cannot help but think about so many of you in here that there was a day when you were a Saul. That there was a day in your past when you were dead in trespasses and sins and God has changed your life. And now you're a servant of Jesus Christ. And notice that's where a believer ought to be. I mean, wouldn't it be, it'd be a silly thing for God to dis- demonstrate His mercy and grace and you get saved and then do nothing for Him. That, that just isn't fitting, is it? And so here he says, Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ. He has a new purpose. Now his purpose is to serve the Lord. So by way of conclusion, one man said this, in, in John Bunyan, God calls the bold leader of a village of village reprobates to preach the gospel. If you read about John Bunyan's life, you see that's who he was. A blaspheming tinker to be one of England's famous confessors. From the deck of a slave ship, he summons John Newton. We read, or we sang his song this morning, Amazing Grace, right? At John Newton, he, uh, from the deck of a slave ship, he summons John Newton to the pulpit and by hand defiled with mammon's foulest and most nefarious traffic brings them that were bound out of darkness and smites adamantine fetters from the slaves of sin. If you remember during our archaic words, that adamantite stone, it's, a, it's, a, it's just the hardest material that you can think of. Those adamantine fetters broken from the slaves of sin. In Paul, the apostle of the Gentiles, he converts Christ's bitterest enemy into his warmest friend. To the man whom a trembling church held most in dread, she comes to owe under God the weightiest obligations. You know what we ought to do for someone like Richard Dawkins? Pray for him. Pray for him. There was a Christopher Hitchens, you know, was a famous skeptic. And his time is too late for him. He died of cancer. And unless he trusted Christ at the very end, I haven't read anything to, to identify that. Um, he's spending eternity apart from Christ. You know what Christ came to do for Christopher Hitchens? Came to save him. You know what Christ did for Richard Dawkins? Came to save him. You know what Christ did for my neighbors and your neighbors? came to save them. So as we go out, they're not our enemies, man. We love them. We want to give them the gospel. And who knows who God will give us the opportunity to reach this fall that maybe maybe right now they're a blasphemer, they're a persecutor, they may be an adulterer, a whoremonger, they may be in a life of sin. But God wants to save them. And so let's continue to be faithful. Are you a servant of Jesus Christ? I hope that you are. Do you know Christ by faith as your Savior? If not, I really hope that you'll come and talk to me. I'll, I'll be here for quite a while after the service. I'd love nothing more than to take the Bible and show you how you can be sure that Christ is your Savior. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for the opportunity to examine the Scriptures this morning.